What if you were born to deliver a message? What if your life was about making a statement to society, calling attention to things that just are not right? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And in this episode, we're going to talk to two people, one a television director, the other an iconic female athlete who helped open our eyes in their own unique ways. In fact, they're going to offer insights, perspective, and thoughts we can all take to heart. Yeah, a couple of great people, but we're also going to meet a woman who came up with a very simple way to make a big difference. We'll find out how she used just a little bit of lipstick to begin the recovery process for women suffering from trauma and pain. And as Bill said, we'll visit with the creator of such TV classics as Cheers and Will and Grace and the director of Dozens More. Now, how big of an impact has James Burroughs made? We'll find out because he's been referred to as the Willie Mays of sitcoms and the Obi-Wan of directing. But to get us started, can you name the first woman to ever officially enter the Boston Marathon? We can, and she's here to tell the incredible story of what happened in that race that pushed her to the forefront in the fight to allow women to participate in athletics all over the world. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. This is Growing Boulder. All she wanted to do was run in the Boston Marathon, and she never expected that what happened to her there would ignite a movement. We have a true icon with us to start the program, one of the most important pioneers in the battle for gender equality. And Mark, she was recently a guest on your critically acclaimed podcast, Fountain of Youth. And you're going to share some of that with our listeners. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Bill, because she really is right up there with leaders like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. Her name is Catherine Switzer. And back in 1967, she became the first female to officially run the Boston Marathon. In an instant, she was thrust into a social movement in America and beyond. And since then, she's founded a global running initiative that's created events for women all over the world. She's a best-selling author and Emmy award-winning television commentator and a member of the National Women's Hall of Fame, a true trailblazer in women's sports history. We began our conversation by going back to when she was a 20-year-old and unexpectedly ran straight into history. Okay, Mark, you know, this could be a long story or a short story. I'll give you the, the short version. The short version is that I actually started running when I was 12, and I realized at a very early age that I could run for a long time, but I couldn't run particularly fast. And I loved running because it absolutely, totally empowered me. You know, I was a, a prepubescent kid going into a big high school, and that gave me a victory under my belt nobody could take away from me. Mm-hmm. And that sense of empowerment and victory, I mean, honestly, I've been running for, what, 62 years. It stayed with me all this time. Anyway, uh, when I got to Syracuse University, I asked the coach if I could train on the men's uh, team. And, and he said, you could train, but you can't be official. But a guy there was a volunteer coach named Arnie Briggs, and he was an ex-marathoner. And he decided he was going to take me under his wing and run with me every day because I was so slow. And we ran and we ran and we ran. And, and he would tell me stories about the Boston Marathon. And so I had heard about this race, but now I was falling in love with it from afar. And I really wanted to do it. And I felt very confident that I could do it because, I, as I said, I had this capacity to run long but not fast. Anyway, we argued because he didn't think any woman anywhere could run a marathon, despite the fact other women had, and said if I ran the distance in practice, he would take me to Boston. So we ran 26 miles one day, 
um, he was so impressed and I was not impressed because I felt it was too easy. And I said, let's run another five miles. That way we know when we go to Boston, we can absolutely finish the race. And he was stunned and he said, okay. Um, and we went out, continued on, ran 31 miles. I was so <laughs> excited. I was just so excited um, and high as a kite, of course. And he passed out when I hugged him. I said, we're going to Boston, Arnie, and he passed out. And then he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. And that's when I really fell in love with the idea of distance. And I felt very confident about distance. The distance run and now the distance training run is is my measure of health it's my measure of creativity it's the thing that gives me my my really my faith and my religion and my belief and also mm. my creativity so um you know that's the, that's a short story about about you know w- wanting to run boston and and why why the, the the distance was important to me but of course you know i had other pro- other problems in the race I, do you want me to tell that story now too well, let me get to that in just a second, because because now I think Arnie Briggs is is a, is an important footnote in in the history of female empowerment. You know, he was, I mean, mm. he was he was a a male man. He was fifty years old, and I was nineteen, and he took this girl under his wing, and believed in her. I mean, this speaks to the power of encouragement, you know, which is really what you have done throughout your life. And, you know, what we talk about a lot. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the power of negativity is something that is, is actually more powerful than positivity. Positivity gets all the attention. Negativity gets none of it. But if anybody will tell you that's stupid, you can't do it. You don't have the ability to do it. It's really hard to do it. So before we get to the start of the race and you mentioned that other women had run a marathon, but still you know, it was it was accepted by many people back there that women could not endure, you know, that distance. Were you afraid of it? Were you uh, were you empowered by the fact that they didn't think you could do it? Did you buy into this culture of uh, of women not being able to do something at all? No, but, but Arnie had, which was interesting because, you know, he was raised in, in that era of, of women, you know, being weak and fragile. And that was his experience with, you know, his own wife and his daughter and the women he knew in his life. So when he met me, I was a completely different kettle of fish. Was I afraid of it? No, no, no. I, I am of the firm belief, truly, if, if something feels that good, it can't be wrong. And my body and my mind was telling me that this is one of the best things you've ever done for yourself. So the, you know what? I got to tell you, Mark, here's the story. The body never lies. <laughs> the body will never lie to you. And um, it will always tell you things. And you just need to listen to it. People don't often. But anyway, so so I was eager to to pursue the distance. My husband, Roger Robinson, keeps telling me, he said it was a real shame they really didn't have ultra races when you were, were younger because he said, I think you would have been a great, great ultra runner. But who cares? It was it was the marathon I fell in love with and it's a, the marathon I still love today. But the prevailing myth though, though Mark, just to come back to your point, was that, that if women ran um, they would be socially objectionable, first of all, because they were sweating and they looked arduous. They looked like it was hard um, that they would injure themselves, that really worse, their uterus would fall out. They would never have children. And God forbid they might turn into a lesbian. Young girls my age would say, you shouldn't run like that. You're going to get big legs. Or you know what? You might grow hair on your chest. <laughs> like like running makes it happen to you. When I and I, I laughed it off because I felt so great, you know, um, 
and, and in many other ways, I was an insecure kid. You know, I was skinny and had frizzy hair and, you know, and I wanted to be pretty and popular, too. But I wasn't giving up running. It made me feel too good. <laughs> well, well, thank you for not giving it up. And, and, and to this day, Catherine, you swear that you were not trying to make a statement. It was not an act of rebellion. And, you know, I don't want to argue with you about that. <laughs> but but the little bit that I know you, I you know, I just think that you're the kind that wants to stir the pot. So you entered the Boston Marathon. You entered with your initials, KV Switzer, not trying to confuse the officials or hide anything because that's how you signed your name. But there was no covert operation no. going on here. Honestly, honestly, when Arnie saw that I could run, we ran that 31 miles. He came over to my dorm with, the next day with the entry forms. And he said, now you've got to sign up for this race. And I said, why do I have to sign up for it? He said, it's a serious race. You've got to pay your $2 entry fee. <laughs> Remember those days? And I said, okay, but maybe it's against the rules. There's got to be a reason that other woman who ran last year didn't didn't wear a number. And he said she should have worn a number. We got out the rule book. There was nothing about gender in the rule book. And we looked at the entry form. There's nothing about gender on the entry form. And I remember feeling quite kind of deflated, you know, because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. You want to know the truth, Mark. I just wanted to go up, put my head down and run. And. I just sat there for a and I looked at Arnie and I said, Arnie, if I wear this bib number, I'm going to be noticed in Boston. And he said, I know. And I'm proud of you. So, so it was that was a wonderful, wonderful moment, you know, that here was this guy. He said, I'm proud of you. And because um, he was taking a big risk, really. So anyway, I signed the form. And yeah, it then became a series of coincidences you couldn't have repeated. I, I signed my name KV Switzer for two reasons. One, because my dad misspelled Catherine on my birth certificate. And <laughs> therefore, it was always corrected because I was writing journalism when I started when I was 13, writing my high school newspaper. The copywriters would change the Catherine thinking they corrected it, but they'd incorrect it. And I mean, to this day, all my trophies are misspelled and it, it upsets me so much. <laughs> you know, I just got to give it up. But anyway, I didn't. I changed it to KV Switzer because uh, at 13, I was also reading who else? J.D. Salinger, T.S. Eliot, E.E. E. Cummings. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a writer, a, a journalist. And that was kind of cool. So that's how I signed that entry form. And so the officials obviously thought that K was Kurt Carrier Kim, but not Catherine, you know, at Boston. And they, they awarded the numbers to me, but not to me because they went to the club. We entered as the Syracuse um, track club. That's right. And Arnie, as the team captain, went and picked up the numbers. It was snowing and sleeting that day. It was horrific. Arnie said, please stay in the car. All the guys are in the gym. They're running around, half of them naked. You'll be embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll get, the, I'll get the bibs, and then we'll come out and pin them on in the car. So we had other, another guy from the track team there and my boyfriend. And we uh, pinned on the numbers in the car, and then we went and parked the car and started warming up. And all the men came up to me when we were warming up and saying, wow, it's great to have a girl here. I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. So I felt really welcome. I felt wonderfully welcome. And that was that was a very important point, too, is that I think our sport is really different. That certainly wouldn't have happened if I tried to, you know, play for the New York Giants or something. Mm -hmm. Runners are really all about inclusiveness and, and, and motivation. And, you know, in a race, you don't care who's next to you. You don't know what their religion. You don't care what their religion or their race or their income or age is. You, you're there motivating each other. And that was that was really apparent at the start and really all throughout the Boston Marathon. 
it was only the officials in the media who were really mean to me. And they, in fact, were quite mean to me. So um, so, so, so let's talk about that, because because here it is, a, a 20 year old woman uh, steps up, laces up her shoes, steps up to the line. And as you say, you just wanted to put your head down and run. Uh, and really what could have been a non story or at least a local story after people saw you turned into a global phenomenon uh, by what you just acknowledged was a weird circumstance of events. Just a couple of miles in, the race director, a guy by the name of Jock Semple, riding in a press truck that happens to pass you, sees you, and then what happens? And then he was being teased by the journalists on the truck. He had a short fuse anyway. It was a rainy, horrible, sleety headwind day. He was trying to get his race off on time, and he felt that here's a girl who's making a mockery of his race, wearing bib numbers. He just lost it. As I said, he had a short fuse anyway. and ran down the street and grabbed me by the shoulders and threw me back and screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he he started pulling at my my chest and and pulling, I got him right here, and and pulling at my my bib numbers, which which I had on my front. And I, I turned to get away from him and it, was, it wasn't screaming, but I was going, ah, ah. Um, and Arnie was yelling at him, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. And he smashed Arnie. And then my boyfriend, Tom, came with a, a, a amazing shoulder charge. And it's funny in the retelling, right? Uh, hits Jock and sends him flying. And after that, um, Jock got back up on the bus and, and, and charged on ahead. But the press vehicle with the camera camera people um, stayed with us for a long time. And they weren't heckling me, but they were um, really berating me. You know, what are you trying to prove? Are you a suffragette? What are you doing in this race? You don't belong here. Um, when are you going to quit? Everything, mm-hmm. everything ended with, when are you going to quit? And I kept saying, I am not going to quit. And finally, they, they left. And that's when I turned to Arnie. And, and actually, uh, then, Mark, that's when it became political. It only at that moment that it become, become political because I turned to Arnie and I said, Arnie, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to, because everybody wants me to quit. They believe women can't do it and they want me to quit and just to prove that they are right. I'm not going to quit. We ran 31 miles a couple of weeks ago. How am I going? I can do this thing. And um, plus we'd park the car in Hopkinton. Well, <laughs> what are we going to do to get home? You know? <laughs> Anyway, no, seriously, um, but but time went on, and and you know how the marathon is. It it's like growing up, and and it gives you a lot of epiphanies, and particularly at at mile twenty one on Heartbreak Hill, you get lots of epiphanies because you're on fumes anyway by that time, and and I realized then it wasn't even Jock Semple's fault, you know, he was a guy who was a product of his time, and 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 I forgave him. I said, okay, he's an overworked tired race director who just doesn't get it and it's going to be up to me to create opportunities for other women so they can experience what I'm feeling which is really great about myself and once I came to that conclusion and I didn't know what it looked like to create those opportunities once I really realized that's what I needed to do and I also wanted to become a better athlete I mean I was I came in in four hours 20 minutes I knew I got pilloried for that you know that was not acceptable that's a jogging time Jock Semple mm. told a press conference the next day I could have walked it that fast. Mm. And it just was infuriating. But anyway, I 
I, I decided I'll be a better athlete and I'll create opportunities for women. And when, when you have that focus, everything else in your life kind of then falls into place around it and you just start heading in that direction. And all of those long, long 100-mile weeks training runs really paid off because I got lots and lots of ideas and I would come in and write them down and created programs and wrote sponsorships and and um, eventually won the New York City Marathon and popped a 251 best at Boston, which was world ranked. And and me, the ordinary kid, you know, actually <laughs> actually got a world ranking. It was amazing. Um, and and then started be, started creating those opportunity programs, which essentially I've done for the rest of my life. You know, broadcasting, book writing, whatever has revolved around the the message that I want to deliver, which is to create opportunities and belief in women that they can do much more than they ever imagined. Let's talk about the photos for, for just a second before we move on. As you mentioned, the, the, the press hassled you, but the press also took pictures. And I don't know how many frames there are, but, uh, you know, there's, there's one of them, folks, that you can look at or you can Google it. Uh, you know, at least eight or ten frames that show the story that Catherine just told. And you can see that she's not embellishing it at all. It was a frightening confrontation. Uh, it was a, uh, a young woman, uh, you know, just trying to run a race and somehow it encapsulated the, the, the social injustice, the, the lack of equality, uh, the lack of female empowerment that existed at that moment. That photograph, um, which at the time, you know, the incident was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. And the worst things in your life can become the best things because Jock Semple and I actually became good friends. That's which is another story, but, but, that photograph became one of the greatest photos, not only in sports rights, but in women's rights. And um, it's, you know, in Time Life's book, 100 Photos That Changed the World, which, you know, is really, really pleasing to me because it just shows, you know, how much the world has changed. Because because women's running has gone on to be not about not even anymore about just sports. It's about a, it's a social revolution. It's about changing lives and empowering lives and ordinary women suddenly realizing they can do extraordinary things. So the picture, uh, though, was a, a very powerful vehicle because it rallied, it rallied men and women both to the cause. We're talking with Catherine Switzer, best known and, and maybe inappropriately so for a marathon that she ran in 1967, because what she has done after that has just been incredible. But Catherine, as you said, you were you were just a, a young woman wanting to take a run. Uh, but at some point, it did become political. And, and you stepped up and you answered the call. And, and so let's jump ahead a little bit, because I think it was in the mid-70s, 1977. Hey, found Mark, it. can yeah. I interrupt just one second? Yeah. You know, there was a split second, obviously, of fear and humiliation, where I said, should I step off this course? Have I done something wrong? And, and I knew if I stepped off the course that I would regret it the rest of my life. Okay, even if something happened in the race and I couldn't finish, at least I tried. But I wasn't going to step off the course. And I think that's something else in life we have to realize, that every time we all have those decisions, usually they're about social injustice. And every time you walk away from it, you have a little drop of bitterness in your life. And um, I never wanted that to happen, you know. So, so let's keep that in mind, guys. Don't, don't walk away from it. <laughs> Try to do what you can.
Up next, we'll continue the conversation with women's running icon Catherine Switzer about what it took to finally allow women to compete in the marathon at the Olympics. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. This is Growing Boulder, and Mark Middleton is speaking with the first woman ever to officially run in the Boston Marathon, Catherine Switzer. Now, her efforts didn't just end there, because 10 years later, she founded a running circuit that created opportunities for women all over the world to participate in long-distance track. And when women were allowed to compete in those events at the 1984 Olympics, well, Switzer told Mark that it was the first time in over 50 years. Well, I'm going to try to, again, tell you the short version of this, because it actually began in 1928 when women were thrown. We had an 800 meters in the Olympics. And uh, due to uh, sort of an IOC jackup, the the um, films and things were were highly edited from that conf- uh, that race. Um, and they said three of the women collapsed in the race. And it was a disgrace for womanhood. And they pulled the 800 meters until 1970. Okay, so we didn't have any long events in the Olympic Games till 1970 to protect women. And mm-hmm. so to get the women's marathon in the Olympic Games was that people thought I was smoking poppy when we were talking about this <laughs> because they said, are you kidding? You know, but but suddenly people were seeing women running marathons. Anyway, the campaign was as if you create enough countries who have women who will run a marathon, can run a marathon. And, of course, we had the performances already, but if you can prove the medical evidence and you can prove the numbers. And I said, well, the only way to do this is to go around the world and create the the events in the different countries. Every federation except the American, the Canadian, the U.K., and New Zealand really gave me a hard time. And they said, Mm. women in our country will never show up. And I said, well, we're going to do the race anyway. I'd really appreciate your support. Well, the women showed up not in their hundreds. The women showed up in their thousands. Mm. And in strange places like Japan, well, Japan was remote at that point. Now, of course, they own the marathon. But um, Japan, uh, Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand, these women came out and they ran. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, of course, then we had really, really good support when it came time to vote to include the women's marathon in the Olympic Games. Now, this is a process that took about eight years. But let me tell you that that is warp speed for the International Mm -hmm. Olympic Committee. And if we had waited to add, you know, uh, let's say a 3,000 and then a 5,000 and then a 10,000 and a marathon, um, it would have been 2012 before we would have had a women's marathon in the Olympic Games. So we leapfrog all of that. And, of course, the result was that that now – in 1984, we have an event where the women are now doing the longest running event, just like the men in the Olympic Games. We had essential parity in running events. And it was almost like giving women the right to vote in 1920, because this was like our physical uh, acceptance 
alongside of the vote, which was our cultural and, and social and intellectual acceptance. So to me, it was really huge, also because it was broadcast to 2.2 billion people on television. And, you know, everybody knows how far 42.2 kilometers or 26.2 miles is, and it's far. Every, everybody knows distance. So that was very, very impressive. It didn't quite change the, the landscape like I thought it would. I thought it would change everything. But it gave me inspiration to take the next step, which is to try to reach out to women who, who have no opportunities to um, go to the Olympics in, in, in countries where women are completely suppressed. That's why we decided to start um, you know, the, the foundation nonprofit 261 Fearless. We can talk about that in a minute, which reaches out to those women in local communities and helps empower them to move on and take the next step. No, I love that. Thank you. That's what I wanted to talk about next, because I think it was uh, 2014 when you launched 261 Fearless, which is a nonprofit uh, to create opportunities for women around the world to run. What is the overall goal, goal there? And, uh, and I know you've touched on the significance of the name, but, but, but talk a little bit more about what 261 has come to represent. Okay. Well, it's really interesting that after they, uh, we got the women's marathon in the Olympics and you know, you're just full of excitement and joy for about two weeks. And then it's like, you know, the, the, uh, the high falls off of the marathon performance, right? Cause you got to get back to work. And I realized that this was really great for women who had the ability to train up and be rep- represent their federations. But how about women who, you know, were under a burqa or were in, a, in poverty or um, or in a dangerous situation domestically at home, for instance, who who couldn't who couldn't take that first step, who who didn't have the oppor- opportunity or the education. So um, suddenly, two six one answered itself. This number with the this is a where Jock Semple tore the one on my back. He didn't get my numbers. He just he just ripped that one. Hmm. Um, and that's, and that became our logo for 261 Fearless. And what happened is that people began writing to me and emailing me and saying, 261 is a magic number for me. It makes me feel fearless in the face of adversity. And these letters and pictures were coming from all over the world. And people were wearing 261 on their back and, and inking it on their arms. And when, when they started sending me pictures of their tattoos, Mark, I had to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. I thought somebody is tattooing 261 on them. It means something. What does it mean? And you know what it meant? It meant that everybody has been told that they're not good enough or they don't belong. And then they start running and they realize they can do anything. And I said, boom, that's it. What are we going to do? We decided to create the nonprofit. We actually became a 501c3 in 2016. Um, And in Boston in 2017, when I ran the 50th anniversary of my famous run, we had 125 women wearing bib numbers, charity bib numbers, and they raised enough money um, with that single race to take us, launch us globally. So it was really, really important. And what it is, is a series of community clubs where we have trained the coach to deliver a running and walking and educational program to other women on the importance, both psychological and physical, of running and showing them how to do it. And they hopefully will then also become coaches, take a leadership role. Many of them have never taken any kind of leadership role and go out to their other communities and start helping other women and just spreading all over the world. And already we're in 12 countries. I'm really excited about it. And I'd love people to visit us at 261fearless.org 
um, think about starting a club, joining us, um, and tell us also what we call our 261 moment. The 261 moment is that moment of Eureka, this is changing my life, the game-changing moment. For me, of course, it was that that moment when I told my coach that I was going to finish the race on my hands and my knees. I wasn't going to drop out. So that was my 261 moment. And we're hoping that this uh, uh, continues to grow. We're really happy for the support we're getting from really terrific sponsors like Adidas and Peloton. Uh, so, you know, thank you very much for asking about that, Mark. And um, I really hope that this is the next great step. It's hard for me at age 75 to imagine. Um, it's not hard to imagine where it's going to go. Okay. But at 75, I have to realize that um, it won't reach fruition until I'm dead. <laughs> so it's, it's the only thing I've ever done where I, I can't, be around, I don't think, to see the final outcome. And uh, uh, that's that's a really weird feeling. But we have such incredible women who have come forward because running has changed their lives. And they have the same feeling I had when I was that young girl at 20 and now are coming through and they are 40, 45, 50, and they are at the top of their game. They're unbelievable. And this is going to be a great program. Love every little word about that. Look at what you have done. Look at what you are doing. You are inspiring people, you know, just by your words, uh, as, as much as you did really, you know, with your with your feet uh, and your attitude and your, your fearlessness back in 1967. So thank you for all that. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. I think you're far too generous. But I will tell you something. When I ran the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary run in 2017, it was the happiest day of my life because all I could remember was that young girl in the cold and the only one out there wearing a bib and getting heckled by the crowd and the media. And there, there are people who are good to me too, but, but basically nobody knew the story. The streets are mostly empty. Um, and then I had a lot to face when I finished afterwards to 2017, when the race was 50, 50 women, there were 13,500 women wearing a bib. Everybody knew the story. Everybody was on board, cheering all the way. My husband, Roger Robinson, and Joanne Flaminio, the first woman president, and 135 years of the Boston Athletic Association were on the finish line waiting for me. Um, And we had all these women, 125 of them, raising money for 261 Fearless, which I knew was going to change the lives of many, many women around the world. Uh, It couldn't have been better. I looked up and I said, I'm ready to go. Mark, that was excellent. A fantastic conversation between two very interesting people. Well, I appreciate that. One at least, Bill. And I think not enough people know the story of Catherine Switzer, but what she did and continues to do certainly has changed the world for the better. And folks, you definitely want to check out that entire interview, which you can find on my podcast, Fountain of Youth. All right, up next, he's considered the king of sitcoms. We'll visit with TV show creator, producer, and director James Burroughs. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health Well 65 Plus, primary care designed for those on Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans, featuring 30 to 60 minute appointments and 24 hour care team access from a nationally renowned network. Advent Health Well 65 Plus, primary care that gets better with age. You're the soldier. 
Well, if you loved television back when you were growing up in the 70s and 80s and wonder where those really great comedies like Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, Taxi, Cheers, Frasers, and so many others have gone, well, we've got someone who had a pretty big hand in all of those shows to thank. In fact, he directed more than a thousand episodes of sitcoms and picked up about a dozen Emmys along the way, too. And he launched the careers of some of our favorite and most memorable characters. And finally, thank goodness, he has written an amazing book about it all. It's called Directed by James Burroughs, Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and we could go on and on. So let's say hi to James Burroughs. How are you? I'm fine. Let's go on and on. Hey, listen, we're thrilled to have you here. And I got to tell you this because I'm sure... Well, I'm going to start with something that you probably used to hear a lot, but haven't in a long time. James Burroughs, are you Abe's son? I am. Do you know that growing up, we had a couple of your dad's albums that I would listen to as a kid? Wow. And I, I mean, I knew who he was when I should have known who you were. I may oh. be sick in the hospital, but I'm not sick of you was my favorite. Oh, yeah. He wrote, uh, <clears throat> he used to write what, what's called type songs. Typical, um, typical topicals. Yeah, I mean, he wrote, um, I know I'm going to see you in my dreams tonight, and that's why I'm staying awake. <laughs> you uh, put the carbon paper under your heart and gave me a copy of your love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen the farm? <laughs> So, so what, what was it? I mean, we all need we all need inspiration, right, in our lives to succeed. Was uh, growing up around your dad, and of course, not only did he do the comedy albums, he had a great career with writing plays on Broadway. Uh, was he an inspiration to you? What what di- of a, what difference did he make? What kind of an impact did he have on your life? Well, he was my dad, so um, you know, this is what my dad did. Uh, I, I never wanted to be in the theater. Uh, he was a legend in it. So uh, he would trundle my sister and I off to rehearsals occasionally like that. And we would, uh, you know, look up on stage. We didn't quite know what was going on. But uh, I like to say he taught me when I didn't know I was learning. And um, after going through college and uh, I went into grad school and um, I went to the Yale School of Drama and then all that stuff that I had seen and learned through osmosis started to kick in when I uh, got into the theater and started working for him as a stage manager. And and I can't, what an incredible career you've had because you've been described as, I think I read that you, you've been described as the Willie Mays of directing and the Obi-Wan of sitcoms, which are great ways to, to kind of phrase it for the rest of us. So, so what do you say, you know, having studied drama when people ask, why didn't you direct more dramas? Ah, well, my my father used to say, um, and I quote him a lot. I, you know, my dad used to say, why don't they, they asked him, why don't you write drama? And he says, I do write dramas. They just happen to be funny. (laughs) I know your father, uh, faded away at the end with Alzheimer's disease. And that, that's something that a lot of us have had to battle, you know, watching our parents, uh, you know, get old and, and move on. How did that affect your outlook on life? Uh, it's a, it's a very sad, uh, it's a very sad occasion. We never, my sister and I assumed that he had Alzheimer's. We never did an autopsy. At that point, uh, he had, um, he had receded into a, a form of himself that nobody recognized. 
Uh, and so that was, you know, to see your father and your hero in a position like that is just extraordinarily difficult. And uh, uh, it left a mark on both of us. And I, um, I, I'm, 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 I'm sad also because he passed in 85 and we, I had just started Cheers in 85. And uh, he saw the pilot, you know, the pilot came out in 82 and he was not totally compass mentis. But he did say to me, I wish the bartender had more dirt under his fingernails. <laughs> and I knew what he meant because Teddy was not a, an athlete. He was a, he was a farceur from Carnegie Mellon who emerged in this role of Sam Malone to become a, 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 a guy who looked like an athlete. But Teddy, you know, he needed to dirty down a bit. So we worked on that. But at least Abe saw the beginnings of Cheers. And what an influence. And it just sounded like, you know, he meant the world to you. And I'm sure that because of all you ended up going on to accomplish, what a, what a great gift you've given his legacy and your success as well. And, you know, I think about this a lot too, James. My, you're older now than your father was, I believe, when he passed away. So look at how we're changing. Look at how in one generation aging has really changed. What What is life like now in your 80s? Uh, I wish I was in my 40s. It's, you know, I, f- I, I feel like I've had a great career. I, uh, I came along in uh, maybe the second uh, golden age of sitcom in the early 70s. I started out and that was the time of uh, All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore, and it was just fortuitous that that was my gift, and I was able to uh, live in that particular life. So uh, I, I'm eternally grateful for that, and uh, I still work. I um, I did a pilot. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't get picked up. I did, in December, I did another live in front of a studio audience for a man who I will eternally work for, Mr. Norman Lear, because uh, I want to say that I'm on a show where I'm not the oldest person. <laughs> and so I still, I, I got to uh, oil the tubes occasionally. I got to, I got to do that. I can't sit at home and uh, just read papers and stuff like that. I got to occasionally go out and interact. And uh, so uh, that's what I do now. I do enjoy my life. And, um, uh, uh, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen to the sitcom. There are not many multi-camera sitcom shows on the air anymore. And uh, as I talk, I I attended the, uh, the funeral of a multi-camera sitcom about five times, and every time they close the coffin and push it off stage. But this time, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's happening out there. And is there a reason for that? I mean, it seems like content is in demand more than ever, you know, with all the streaming services. I wonder if if sitcoms are going the way of the Western or if they just need a, a, a new fresh James Burroughs kind of a, a way of igniting them again. I don't know. I wish I, I wish I could figure it out. Uh, I, I like to say when I started out in the 70s, there were um, uh, three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 500 networks and 30 great comedy writers. The comedies that are done in this, in this 500 network world we live in, you know, 
the preponderance of them are going to be terrible. So I'm not sure. I, th- I think you need just one to break through, and I'm not sure where that is or who that is. So, so what's the, the difference? I mean, is it, is it, you know, you alluded to the writers or the actors or the directors. What, what are we missing? What is it that makes it so hard to create a comedy that, that, in, that is enduring and endearing to us? Did you ever try to put lightning in a bottle? Mm. You got to be, you got to be lucky. I admire uh, what Larry David does. I think it's genius, but you couldn't do that as a, really as a multi-camera because it's so much, it's, it's, it's improvised, but yeah, you're talking about curb your enthusiasm where they start with a, they start with like an idea, but they don't have like a script necessarily to go off. of. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, other than that, it's, uh, there are few and, and far between my, my dear friend, Chuck Laurie, who, who has kept the sitcom alive, you know, just lost two sitcoms. They, they were canceled. So I don't know what's going on. You know, I think the networks have a lot to do with it. I'm not sure what, because I, a multi-camera sitcom is relatively inexpensive to do. And uh, the upside is tremendous. So uh, I'm not sure what's going on. Well, again, it's probably going to take another great talent to, to step up and ignite that spark again. It seems like it's a very much a copycat industry. And, uh, you know, off the backs of the Dick Van Dyke show, you know, came the next generation, as you mentioned, of the Mary Tyler Moores. And the it took an all in the family to, to light that spark again. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's going to take another show right now. I, I uh, you know, Modern Family is was actually a uh, multi-camera sitcom. It was just. Uh, the, the technique of shooting it uh, required them not to do it in front of an audience. Mm. But uh, those two guys, Steve and Chris, came out of multi-camera. And, uh, you know, since Big Bang went off the air, there has not been a really, really successful multi-camera sitcom. Man, thinking back at all the great ones, I'm sure when you look over your career, all the shows, doesn't everybody ask you, you know, what your favorite is? It's probably like asking if you have a favorite child or a favorite finger. Well, Hands down, my favorite show was Cheers because um, I get a co-created credit on it by uh, the Charles Brothers gave me that. And uh, I'm eternally grateful for 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 that. Um, but that was definitely my favorite show. That was I call that my baby. You've lived an amazing life and you've made our entire country laugh for year after year and show after show after show. You really are. Forget Willie Mays. You're the Babe Ruth of sitcoms. (laughs) And and the book is a great read. I want to thank you so much for everything you've done in your career because we're the ones, you know, laughter, sitcoms, TV makes us look at ourselves. And you've brought so many incredible issues to the forefront and disarmed them and made us look at ourselves through laughter instead of through anger. Again, the book is called Directed by James Burroughs. Our thanks to the legend, the Obi-Wan of sitcoms, Mr. James Burroughs. Up next, the fascinating story behind a program that's making quite a difference for women victimized by abuse and trauma. This is Growing Bolder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. 
miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Did you know that there's a lot of power in a tube of lipstick? Well, Cheryl Curlin certainly does. In fact, she's used that power to help change the lives of domestic violence victims. Growing Boulder contributor Cecily Wilson sat down with Curlin to explain the unusual connection. I never planned on anything like this in my entire life. I had no idea how to start a nonprofit, but I was giving workshops as a volunteer at Safe House, our local shelter, and I saw how broken these women were, and I saw a room of beautiful people, and I just, just the image and taking it home with me, I said, there's got to be something else I can do. How can I fill in the blank to make these women feel like women again? And my mom always used to say, Cheryl, if you want to feel better, go put on a little lipstick. Before her next workshop, Cheryl went and bought several brand new lipsticks. At the end of the workshop, Curlin told the women that she had something for them as a thank you and spilled the lipsticks onto the table. It was like I took a magic wand to the room. The women cheered up. They were laughing. There was joy. The pain was gone. The stress was gone. And they sat there and they helped each other pick the right color. And then they sat there and they started having normal conversation. And I absolutely could not believe what I was seeing. I did the workshops about every two weeks. Same thing happened over and over again. I said, this is a miracle. I have got to multiply this miracle by the thousands. And that's how I got the idea for Find Your Fabulosity. Cheryl recruits clubs, businesses, and organizations all over the United States to do lipstick drives. That's how Jerry Evans met Cheryl and became involved. The whole premise that lipstick could give someone confidence, that somebody could finally break out of being told that they were not pretty, they were not worthwhile. And it was a powerful story that she told, and it was one that, that when I said to our Rotary Club, would you like to be part of it? We did. I lost one of my assistants uh, 10 years ago to domestic violence. And so this has just meant so much to me, and I can only imagine what it might have meant to her. Cheryl's first goal was 60 lipsticks, then 100, 1,000, then 15,000. Today, Find Your Fabulosity has distributed over 75,000 lipsticks to around 300 domestic violence shelters across the United States. And in return, Cheryl has discovered passion and purpose. It's kind of bittersweet because it's needed. You know, it's an epidemic in this country. But at the same time, the fact that I can make an impact on these women is just says just I'm excited for every single day that I wake up and it never changes. I love it. Another example, Bill, that just about anybody can make a pretty big difference, and there's more information about how to help women everywhere begin the healing process at findyourfabulosity.org. Really interesting stuff. And now it's time for a segment called On My Mind with Mark. And it's one of my favorite things that we do here at Growing Boulder because, man, we take a different look, a different perspective at issues that affect us all as we age. And and Mark, it, you don't hear this often enough, the, an exciting 
and empowering message about growing older. So what can we talk about today that will kind of help us expand ourselves or maybe even learn? Let's talk about the next issue of Growing Boulder magazine, Bill, because the overall theme of this issue is growth. And I just love that subject because I think that life is really about learning. It's about growth, and growth is really never easy because it's nonlinear. If if you knew where it was going to go, it would be easy, but I think we all know you take a step forward, you take a step back, you take a step sideways, you take two steps back, you take three steps forward. You know, by its very nature, growth is about risk, and risk always leads to challenges, but challenges are what stimulate growth. If you don't challenge yourself, you're never going to grow, and, you know, that makes growth uncomfortable at times. It's... Uh, it's why the process is something that many people are unwilling to pursue. You know, you you really hit on something there. It's it's a challenge, right? It's challenges. In order to face challenges, we need to be confident in ourselves. And society tells us that as we get older, we're capable of less. Sometimes we could be very confident, and as we age, we start to lose a little of that confidence. Am I as sharp as I was? Do I look as good as I did? Am I as capable as I hope I am. And that's what makes challenges and growth a little bit scary, a little intimidating as we age. I don't think we have to be confident that we'll be successful, Bill. I think we have to be confident that we can endure failure. I think that's the big difference because, you know, failure is what ultimately leads to success. And I think the people that can't except the fact that life will have challenges, stagnate. They end up on the couch. Uh, they end up in a lifestyle that they don't enjoy. And, uh, you know, I think here's the message. If you're never challenged, you're never going to grow. So, so why do you want to grow? Why do you want to keep challenging yourself as you get older? Because the byproduct of growth is wisdom. And wisdom is the ultimate reward for growing older. Wisdom is what leads us to understand that less is more. Wisdom is what leads us to realize that in order to find our true selves, we have to let go of that which isn't us. That's fascinating. And wisdom isn't just for the purpose of imparting information to others. It makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel that we understand this journey that we've been on and make peace with ourselves. Yeah, I think there you go. In the final analysis, if you want to grow, you have to take risk. You have to confront challenges. You have to learn from challenges because then you gain wisdom. And if you just sit on the couch and watch TV all day long, you'll never grow. You'll never learn. You'll never gain wisdom. Mark, we at Growing Boulder provide inspiration like this everywhere all the time. And, folks, one of the best ways to get on a weekly basis is to go to growingbolder.com and become an insider to get the insider newsletter for free. We've got our television show, and we'll see you again with another radio show very soon. 